You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode 194 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. At the end of the last episode, it was 9 o'clock on the morning of Wednesday, September 17, 1862. After three hours of fierce combat, the Confederates holding the left end of Robert E. Lee's line, north of Sharpsburg, had finally been driven from all of the battlefield east of the Hagerstown Turnpike, that is, from the cornfield and the east woods, and the pasture and the Mumma farmstead south of them. In the ferocious fighting, some 8,000 men had already fallen, with the loss about equally divided between Union and Confederate. The cornfield had been at the center of the storm, and among the trampled stalks and around its four sides, the dead and wounded carpeted the ground. Over along the Hagerstown Turnpike, the bodies lay in heaps, so torn and mangled by the blasts of point-blank cannon fire that a soldier said, You were obliged to look twice before recognizing them as human beings. Joseph Hooker's 1st Corps and Joseph Mansfield's 12th Corps had each went in alone and unsupported, first Hooker, then Mansfield, but nevertheless the successive hammer blows of their attacks had pushed the rebels on this part of the field to the breaking point, as Stonewall Jackson's command and three of D.H. Hill's brigades were wrecked and used up trying to hold back the Federal attacks. By 9 a.m., 12th Corps' advance had set the stage for a Union breakthrough here on the northern part of the battlefield. As Stonewall's shattered units tried to rally and regroup, and as D.H. Hill's troops, brought over from the center of the rebel line, fell back in disorder, John B. Hood took it upon himself to send Colonel S.D. Lee to find the commanding general and tell him that the Army's left flank was in imminent danger of collapsing unless it was reinforced. The colonel intercepted Robert E. Lee as he was on his way to the left to personally assess the situation. An aide was leading Lee's trusty steed traveler, since the general's still splinted and bandaged hands made it difficult to manage a horse. Lee wanted to establish a backup line of artillery on the high ground of Hauser's Ridge behind the West Woods to support the reeling Confederate infantry as they tried to form a new line. Lee had also ordered Lafayette McClaws from the Army's thin reserve to march to Stonewall's aid. Told of Hood's message, Lee replied, Don't be excited about it, Colonel. Go tell General Hood to hold his ground. Reinforcements are now rapidly approaching. 
Tell him I am now coming to his support. Even as Lee spoke, the brigade of Tyke Anderson that he had earlier called up from the Army's right was now entering the West Woods, and as the colonel turned to leave, Lee also pointed out McClaws's men approaching at the double quick. Meanwhile, on the federal side of the lines, with the 125th Pennsylvania at the Dunker Church and Brigadier General George S. Green's division within supporting distance nearby, Fighting Joe Hooker could sense victory within his reach. As he later said, at that moment, with the rebels on the ropes, he, quote, counted on either capturing their army or driving them into the Potomac. But then fate intervened. Riding his eye-catching white horse and right up at the front line to personally position troops and batteries for a renewed offensive, Hooker was hit in the foot by a bullet fired by a Confederate soldier over in the West Woods. In great pain and losing quite a bit of blood, Hooker was carried from the field. His last order was to the advance elements of the 12th Corps, quote, Tell them to carry those woods and hold them, and it is our fight. Shortly after 9 a.m., Alpheus Williams, who had taken over command of the 12th Corps after Mansfield was mortally wounded, sent a message to McClellan's headquarters, saying, General Mansfield is dangerously wounded. General Hooker wounded severely in foot. General Sumner, I hear, is advancing. We hold the field at present. Please give us all the aid you can. As we said in the last show, 2nd Corps Commander Edwin Sumner had spent most of the morning over on the east side of Antietam Creek, twiddling his thumbs, awaiting orders from George McClellan. The sight of Hood's division of Confederates swarming to the attack from the West Woods behind the Dunker Church had finally jolted Little Mac into action, and at 7.20 he issued orders for Sumner and the 2nd Corps to cross the creek and march to Hooker's support. But not the entire 2nd Corps, however. Little Mac's orders specified that one of Sumner's three divisions must be held back east of the creek for defensive purposes until George Morrill's division of the 5th Corps came up from its bivouac a mile to the rear to replace it. Morrill, displaying a stupendous lack of urgency, required 90 minutes to make his one-mile march. Bull Sumner, on the other hand, moved with all possible speed once he finally received orders from McClellan, but he was starting two miles from where he was needed over on the northern part of the battlefield, and so even with his best efforts, it would be some time before he reached the scene of the fighting. After splashing across Antietam Creek, when Sumner at last arrived in the East Woods with his leading division, commanded by Major General John Sedgwick, a lull had fallen over the northern part of the battlefield. As the fog of the early morning had burned off, the day had brightened, but men would remember something menacing and sinister about the quiet, sunlit scene, as if two great beasts who had been locked in mortal combat were catching their breaths before starting to tear at one another again. Men were reminded the tale of the Kilkenny cats, which in the savagery of their battle devoured each other. There once were two cats of Kilkenny. Each thought there was one cat too many. So they fought and they fit, and they scratched and they bit, till, accepting their nails and the tips of their tails, instead of two cats, there weren't any. A 
After having crossed Antietam Creek and reached the East Woods, as John Sedgwick got his division ready to advance and enter the battle, Bull Sumner surveyed the situation. Hooker, losing consciousness, had been carried from the field and could tell Sumner nothing. Alpheus Williams, though, rode up to brief him on the 12th Corps' dispositions. The shattered and spent units of Hooker's 1st Corps were dispersed or were rallying behind the front lines, while the formations of the 12th Corps were widely scattered, with one brigade reinforcing the 1st Corps' foothold when earlier in the north part of the West Woods, two brigades supporting batteries in front of the East Woods, then the 125th Pennsylvania was at the Dunker Church with Green's two brigades nearby. Williams reported that Green was awaiting a resupply of ammunition, and he advised Sumner to take precautions in his advance. But Bull Sumner paid little, if any, attention to Williams. The 65-year-old Sumner was the oldest field commander in the Army of the Potomac, and to say that he was set in his ways would be an understatement. By ignoring Alpheus Williams, he was displaying a characteristic that he had also shown during the Peninsula Campaign. There, with his mind set on something, Sumner had fixated on that one thing, impervious to information and advice from his fellow generals. That was one reason McClellan had intended Sumner to go into action under Hooker's control there on the northern part of the battlefield, but by the time Sumner arrived on the scene, Hooker had been knocked out of action, and now Bull Sumner was under no one's control. Alpheus Williams would later complain in a letter to a friend that at Antietam, the lives of hundreds of federal soldiers were, quote, foolishly sacrificed, end quote, by generals like Sumner, quote, who would come up with their commands and pitch in at the first point without consultation with those who knew the ground or without reconnoitering. A warning message was sent to Sumner from Army headquarters saying, General McClellan desires you to be very careful how you advance, as he fears our right is suffering. But when the courier reached the front, Sumner was nowhere to be found. That's because the one thing that Sumner fixated on here was that since the only federal troops he could see were Green's men several hundred yards away, over in the vicinity of the Dunker Church, they must mark the Union Army's flank, and the rebels' flank as well. So Sumner got the idea in his head that he need only march Sedgwick's division straight ahead, that is due west, and into the west woods, then wheel left, and in the words of the Corps historian, sweep down the Confederate line, driving it before him through Sharpsburg, and heaping it up in disorder before Burnside, who crossing the lower bridge will complete the victory. Had Sumner arrived on the scene an hour, or even a half hour earlier, when the rebels here were shattered and disorganized, and before Lee's reinforcements arrived, or had Sumner taken the ordinary precautions of establishing a skirmish line, seeing to the posting of adequate supports, or making a reconnaissance of the ground to his front, then he might have avoided the disaster that was about to befall him. But instead, Sumner decided to advance straight across the battlefield into the West Woods, and in doing so, he would present his left flank to Stonewall Jackson, a gift that Stonewall always appreciated. When Hood's counterattack was repulsed, Jackson's force holding the Confederate left was reduced to perhaps 1,400 effectives, 
his single uncommitted brigade, led by Jubal Early, and several hundred men that Andrew Grigsby had managed to rally. However, fortunately for the rebels, this precariously thin line wasn't tested. By the time Bull Sumner reached the field, Tig Anderson's brigade from the right and three brigades under Lafayette McClaws from the Army's Reserve gave Stonewall 3,000 fresh men to counter this new federal thrust. With 5,400 men in Sedgwick's division and the 125th Pennsylvania at the Dunker Church, the Federals had an edge in manpower in this newest round of combat. But the Confederates more than offset this by having the advantages of position, of artillery support, and of surprise. It was sometime after 9 a.m. when Sumner ordered Sedgwick's division to advance. Sumner would lead the advance personally, as if he was heading up a charge of the old First Dragoons against hostile Indians on the frontier. In his impatience, Sumner didn't wait for the arrival of his second division, commanded by Brigadier General William H. French. French was 20 minutes behind Sedgwick. And Sumner's 3rd Division, led by Major General Israel B. Richardson, was only just then being released by McClellan to cross Antietam Creek. Ironically, Edwin Sumner was one of the few Union generals on September 17th to recognize the importance of time and act with urgency, but in this instance it led him toward disaster. When French arrived in the East Woods, Sumner was already gone, and he had neglected to leave his staff officer behind to direct French into the battle. As a result, as we'll see in the next episode, French won't follow Sedgwick, but will veer off in another direction. At any rate, due to Bull Sumner's impatience and his failure to take ordinary precautions, John Sedgwick's division would enter a deadly ambush alone and unsupported. We soon crossed the Antietam, the water being nearly two feet deep. After crossing, we stopped to wring out our stockings. We then proceeded alternately through wood and field. Soon our approach was discovered by the enemy, and they commenced to shell us with a vengeance. The shell burst thick and fast over us and around us, but we pressed steadily on. Soon we came to a large open field partly planted with corn, and it seemed as if the ground was almost covered with dead and wounded, a large majority of which were Confederates. It appeared that Hooker had fought one of the most desperate fights on this field that has been fought since the commencement of the rebellion. Passing the road, we entered a belt of wood. I had hardly stepped into the wood when, in an instant, our left became engaged. We halted, and at it we went. I never had a better chance at them in my life. I saw a Confederate officer sitting on a horse. I thought I could fetch him off that horse, but after trying three or four times, I give it up, thinking I might do better to fire at the crowd, so I don't know whether I hit anybody or not. Now the Rebs began to fall back. I thought to myself, we have got you now. But almost at the same time, I heard a voice from the rear crying out, fall back. I turned around and said, What does that mean? Aren't the Rebs falling back themselves? But again the cry, Fall back! Now someone yelled out, We are flanked! I looked, and, ah, it was too true. In a moment all was confusion. 
It was every man for himself. We all run like a flock of sheep. Private Roland E. Bowen, 15th Massachusetts Infantry, Gorman's Brigade. The command was given by the right flank, and the boys scaled the fence. I was never able to decide whether I landed on my head or my feet, but I made better time over that fence than I did over one before or since. As the boys struck the ground, a sheet of flame belched forth, and the sharp report of rifles seemed to say, Yankee, you have had your way long enough. We will now have ours. When I looked in front, I saw about sixty yards distant a solid line of blue and every man working his gun for all it was worth. Directly in front of me, I saw the stars and stripes waving to the breeze. How defiant it appeared as it slowly unfolded, then dropped back again around the staff. I thought that it would be honor enough for one day if I could cause it to strike the ground, and placing my rifle to my shoulder, I took deliberate aim at the color bearer's breast, but as I pressed the trigger, my gun snapped. I had to pick the tube, put in powder and cap, and when I looked up, the line was a little in advance of me. I saw Lieutenant G.B. Lamar, commanding Company F, in front of the line, waving his sword and calling on the men to follow him. Thinking my being in the rear might cause the lieutenant to suspect I was showing some white feathers, under the impulse of the moment I ran through the line to the front. Looking to the left, I saw Captain Wayne and two other officers holding up the almost lifeless form of Captain Montgomery, who had been shot in the head. I had but a moment to take in the situation, as an order passed along the line to charge boys and give them the bayonet, and with the wild rebel yell ringing in my ears, I had to move in a hurry." There is something in a desperate charge, a feeling that cannot be defined or expressed, in the onward rush to victory or defeat. When we were within thirty feet of the Federal line, it wavered, then broke, and dashed to the rear. The yell that went up from my throat started from the bottom of my heart. Where the line had stood, the earth was covered in blue. I believe I could have walked on them without putting my feet on the ground. Sergeant William H. Andrews, 1st Georgia Infantry, G.T. Anderson's Brigade. When Stonewall Jackson's line had contracted, Jeb Stewart had pulled his batteries back from Nicodemus Heights to Hauser's Ridge behind the West Woods, and when Sedgwick's Federals began their advance, the Confederate guns lobbed shells over the woods and into the marching Yankees with deadly effect. The rebel cannon could hardly miss. Sumner elected to have Sedgwick's division advance in deployed brigades, marching on a front some 500 yards across, the three brigades in successive lines only 30 yards apart. Not only did this provide the Confederate artillery with an ideal target, but it gave the tightly massed Federal units no room to maneuver to the right or left. If attacked from the flank, the formation would be quite helpless. Taking losses from the Confederate shellfire, Sedgwick's men pushed across the cornfield, where the terrified wounded of both sides cried out and waved their arms to keep from being trampled upon. Reaching the Hagerstown Turnpike, the Yankees crossed the road and the clover field beyond and entered the West Woods. Riding at the point of the advance with Brigadier General Willis A. Gorman's brigade, Sumner noticed that the 1st Minnesota was advancing with cased colors. He bellowed, In God's name, what are you fighting for? Unfurl those colors. 
Gorman's line emerged at a lane on the far edge of the woods and got into a sharp fight with some of Grigsby's confederates posted among the outbuildings on the Alfred Poffenberger farm. Sedgwick's 2nd and 3rd Brigades, led by Brigadier Generals N.J.T. Dana and Oliver O. Howard, halted close behind in the woods. Suddenly there was an outburst of firing some 250 yards off to their left and rear near the Dunker Church. As time had passed, Colonel Jacob Higgins, commanding the 125th Pennsylvania, had grown more and more uneasy at his regiment's isolated position near the church. Just inside the West Woods, the ground was broken and difficult, and the trees and rock outcroppings limited visibility, but Higgins began to suspect that the woods to the south and west were full of rebels. Suddenly, Higgins' suspicions were confirmed as a hail of musketry hit his troops and rapidly spread until it was striking them from the front and flank. The Green Pennsylvanians did the best they could, but the enemy fire was overwhelming, and as Higgins gave the order to fall back, they broke and ran. The colonel reported that if they had stood for two more minutes, quote, I would have lost my whole command. Just then, two stray regiments from Sedgwick's division turned up at the church, just in time to catch the next Confederate volleys. These Federals were veteran troops and stood their ground longer than the 125th Pennsylvania, but finally they too had to withdraw. The Federals retreated back toward the East Woods, with South Carolinians of Brigadier General Joseph B. Kershaw's brigade hot on their heels. A Union battery loaded with canister to meet this rebel charge, but the cannon couldn't get a clear shot because the panicked rookie Pennsylvanians were running straight for the battery, rather than swerving off to the sides to give the friendly cannon a clear field of fire. One of the Federal gunners later said, quote, At last our cannoneers became so impatient to fire that it was impossible to restrain them any longer, and the battery opened. Some of our men, I have no doubt, were killed, but it was better to sacrifice a few of their lives than to allow the rebels to capture our battery. As the Union guns finally opened fire and blasted the onrushing rebels with canister, Kershaw broke off the pursuit of the retreating Yankee infantry. Stonewall Jackson now directed his full attention to the exposed left flank of Sedgwick's division in the West Woods. Jubal Early's Virginians and two of Lafayette McClaw's brigades, led by Brigadier Generals William Barksdale and Paul Semmes, spearheaded the Confederate attack. In their formations deployed to engage an enemy to their front, the tightly massed Federals were helpless against this devastating flank assault and almost equally helpless to react to it. The three lines of Yankees facing west were so close together that it was all but impossible to pivot regiments to form a new front facing south to confront this new threat. The result was chaos. One Union colonel said his regiment lost 60 men before they could return a single shot. As soon as he realized what was happening, Sumner spurred his horse toward the rear formations to try to get them out of the trap. The troops saw him riding toward them, waving his hat and yelling, but they couldn't hear him with what with all the noise, and they assumed he wanted them to charge, and with the cheer they fixed bayonets. But finally Sumner was close enough to be heard, and he shouted, Back, boys, for God's sake, move back. You're in a bad fix.
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The federal regiments forming the left of each brigade line took the worst damage from the Confederate flank attack that boiled up from the south. The 42nd New York of Dana's brigade was shattered and scattered by three successive enemy volleys that cut down half its men. Next in line to it was the 59th New York, troops who that day were seeing combat for the first time and when they tried to wheel to meet the rebels, they overlapped the 15th Massachusetts and Gorman's Brigade in front of them. In the chaos and confusion, they opened fire and shot down scores of the Massachusetts men. Finally, Sumner rode into the middle of the tangle and bellowed for the New Yorkers to cease firing. Mortified by their mistake, they never forgot how the angry old general, in one soldier's words, quote, cussed them out by the right flank. Caught between the fire of friend and foe, the 15th Massachusetts suffered 318 casualties in those few confusing minutes, the highest count in any regiment in the Union Army on September 17th. The 72nd Pennsylvania, the left-flank regiment in Howard's Brigade, lost 237 men, the third highest toll. Lieutenant Colonel Francis Palfrey of the 20th Massachusetts said, quote, in less time than it takes to tell it, the ground was strewn with the bodies of the dead and wounded, while the unwounded were moving off rapidly to the north. End quote. One of those left behind with a wound in the neck, thought at first to be fatal, was the future Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. of the 20th Massachusetts. His brigade commander, General Dana, was wounded but was able to stay in the fight. Division Commander John Sedgwick, though, was hit three times and carried from the field. Oliver Howard's command, known as the Philadelphia Brigade, had caught the heaviest fire at the beginning of the Confederate attack and was the first to collapse, but the same fate soon overtook Gorman's and Dana's brigades. The right and left of the rebel battle line curled forward until the relentless enemy fire was striking the hapless Yankees from three directions. To the west, Jeb Stewart advanced batteries to pour shot and shell into the collapsing Federal ranks. The only escape for the Yankees was to the north, 
past the Miller and Nicodemus farms. Regiments or companies would try to make a stand at a fence line or behind a rock outcropping, only to be outflanked by the enemy or overrun by the tide of desperate fugitives. A soldier in the 19th Massachusetts later wrote to his family, telling them that, quote, Again and again, and at every command of the officers, we formed, but the fire was so hot. End quote. Carried along in the retreat were the two brigades from the 1st and 12th Corps that earlier had won a foothold in the northern part of the West Woods. After a half mile or so, the flight north finally ended at a makeshift line of Union artillery and 1st Corps troops, who had rallied here after their early morning fight. In the face of this line, the Confederates broke off their pursuit and retired back to the West Woods. Sedgwick's division, together with the 125th Pennsylvania, suffered over 2,300 casualties in Stonewall Jackson's flank attack. By far the largest share of those losses came in the opening minutes of the devastating Confederate assault. Jackson's losses came to less than a 1,000 men. Old Bull Sumner's conspicuous bravery in the midst of the chaos and confusion was much admired by his men. One of them wrote that he and his company would have been captured, quote, if General Sumner himself had not rode in through a terrific fire of the enemy and brought us off, end quote. Of course, it was Sumner's rashness and blundering tactics that had caused the debacle in the first place and had turned the course of the battle once again in the Confederates' favor. Sumner sent McClellan a message by signal flag notifying Little Mac that, quote, Reinforcements are badly wanted. Our troops are giving way, end quote. Among the reinforcements Sumner hoped for were the troops of French's division of his own 2nd Corps, who he had completely lost track of. Sumner rather pathetically requested of McClellan, quote, If you know where they are, send them immediately. Before long, I gained the little farmhouse marked on the maps as the Nicodemus house. The yard was full of wounded men, and the floor of the parlor, where I lay down, was well covered with them. Among others, Captain Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. walked in, the back of his neck clipped by a bullet. It so happened that I wore on that day the light blue trousers and dark blue blouse of a private. When the rebels, a little later, were busy in the yard, paroling some and taking others to the rear, paying marked attention, of course, to officers, I was glad to have taken the precaution to remove my shoulder straps and to conceal them with my sword under a blanket. The first Confederate to make his appearance put his head through the window and said, Yankees? Yes. Wounded? Yes. Would you like some water? A wounded man always wants some water. He off with his canteen, threw it into the room, and then resumed his place in the skirmish line and his work of shooting retreating Yankees. In about fifteen minutes that good-hearted fellow came back to the window, all out of breath, saying, Hurry up there! Hand me my canteen! I am on the double-quick myself now! Someone twirled the canteen to him, and away he went. For a while the farmhouse appeared to be midway between the opposing forces. Shells broke the window panes and plowed up the wounded in the yard, but not a shot went through the house. Captain Norwood P. Hollowell, 
20th Massachusetts Infantry, Dana's Brigade. A man lying upon the ground asked for a drink. I stooped to give it, and having raised him with my right hand, was holding the cup to his lips with my left, when I felt a sudden twitch of the loose sleeve of my dress. The poor fellow sprang from my hands and fell back, quivering in the agonies of death. A ball had passed between my body and the right arm which supported him, cutting through the sleeve and passing through his chest from shoulder to shoulder. The patient endurance of those men was most astonishing. As many as could be were carried into the barn as a slight protection against random shot. Just outside the door lay a man wounded in the face, the ball having entered the lower jaw on the left side and lodged among the bones of the right cheek. His imploring look drew me to him. When placing his fingers upon the sharp protrusion, he said, "'Lady, will you tell me what this is that burns so?' I replied that it must be the ball which had been too far spent to cut its way entirely through. "'It is terribly painful,' he said. "'Won't you take it out?' I said I would go for a surgeon. "'No, no,' he said, catching my dress. "'They cannot come to me. I must wait my turn, for this is a little wound. You can get the ball. Please take the ball out for me.' This was a new call. I had never severed the nerves and fibers of human flesh, and I said I could not hurt him so much.' He looked up, with as nearly a smile as his mangled face could assume, saying, "'You cannot hurt me, dear lady. I can endure any pain that your hands can create. Please do it. It will relieve me so much.' I could not withstand his entreaty, and opening the best blade of my pocket knife, prepared for the operation. Just at his head lay a stalwart sergeant from Illinois, with a face beaming with intelligence and kindness, and who had a bullet directly through the fleshy part of both thighs. He had been watching the scene with great interest, and when he saw me commence to raise the poor fellow's head and no one to support it, with a desperate effort he succeeded in raising himself to a sitting position, exclaiming as he did so, I will help do that, and took the wounded head in his hands and held it while I extracted the ball and washed and bandaged the face. I do not think a surgeon would have pronounced it a scientific operation, but that it was successful I dared to hope from the gratitude of the patient. Clara Barton, Union Nurse. While Sedgwick's division was in the midst of its trials, Sumner had called on Alpheus Williams of the 12th Corps to send him any uncommitted troops he could, and Williams ordered two regiments over to the West Woods. When they arrived there, however, they found only a well-placed Confederate battle line that promptly riddled them with deadly fire. Once again, Robert E. Lee had timed his reinforcements perfectly, for this was a brigade from John Walker's division that Lee had ordered up from the Army's right flank earlier, and its fire sent those two Yankee regiments scampering back to their starting places. The second of Walker's brigades didn't fare as well when it attempted to drive Green's Federals from their position just to the east of the Dunker Church. Green's troops had been resupplied with ammunition and had already helped beat off that advance by Kershaw's South Carolinians. They met this second rebel attack with a fire so murderous that Walker's men, in the words of one Ohio officer, quote, fell like grass before the mower. With a cheer, the Yankees rushed in pursuit of their retreating foes and seized a lodgment in the West Woods behind the Dunker Church. 
They were a small force, perhaps 700 men in all, but for the second time that morning, the Federals had won a hold on this critical piece of ground, and Green dispatched an urgent request for reinforcements. Meanwhile, one of McClellan's staff sent to the front to assess the situation sent back a brief pointed report saying, quote, things look blue, end quote. It was shortly after 10 o'clock and after more than four hours of the most savage fighting either army, army had ever experienced, the Federals appeared no closer to success than when Hooker opened the fighting at sunrise. The First Corps was incapable of further offensive action, and its commander was wounded and carried from the field. The Twelfth Corps had made important gains, but it was also much diminished, and its commander mortally wounded. The single division of the Second Corps that had joined the action here on the Confederate left was wrecked, and its commander was wounded and carried from the field. Of the 75,000 troops McClellan could have put into the fighting that morning if he had ordered all his forces to the battlefield as promptly as possible, just 21,200, considerably less than a third, had been been sent into action against Lee's Confederates. Furthermore, Little Mac had put those troops into action, as Sumner said, quote, in driblets, end quote. That is, McClellan had committed them piecemeal, with a marked lack of coordination, and with neither timely support nor reinforcement. The Confederates had faced this series of federal attacks with two-thirds as many men, consisting of Stonewall's force, D.H. Hill's brigades, and the reinforcements called up by Lee. Yet those rebels had fought the Yankees to a standstill there on the northern part of the battlefield. While Robert E. Lee had been anticipating events and acting decisively, McClellan seemed content to passively watch the battle unfold, reacting to events, and doing a poor job of it. With Sumner's blundering and Sedgwick's bloody repulse, the initiative slipped completely out of Little Mac's hands. The Battle of Antietam would now follow its own terrible logic to a conclusion beyond George McClellan's ability to manage. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is A Field Guide to Antietam, Experiencing the Battlefield Through Its History, Places, and People, by Carol Reardon and Tom Vossler. Reardon and Vossler followed up their successful A Field Guide to Gettysburg with this effort on Antietam. It explores 21 sites on and near the battlefield, and each stop is structured around the following questions. What happened here? Who fought here? Who commanded here? Who fell here? Who lived here? And how did the participants remember the events? You can find all of our book recommendations going all the way back to episode number one if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then we have a request to make, and it's that if you listen to the podcast through iTunes, please consider giving the show a five-star rating, or even taking a minute or two to write a review. And that's important because... Because it helps other people discover the podcast. Exactly. And the more the merrier, right? Speaking of which, we want to send out many thanks to the newest members of the Strawfit Brigade, Derek, Elizabeth, Barbara, and Jeremy. 
And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Antietam. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.